So welcome to the Forest Spirituality Podcast with me, Julie Brett. Tonight I've got Louise Hewitt, who is the author of the Pictish Spirit series of books. She's a writer and an artist and is inspired by paganism from both Britain and adapting it to Australia, uh, goddess feminism and many other things. Um, the books are, are a very interesting read and challenge us, I think, on lots of different levels. So um, would you like to tell us a little bit about how the books came about and how you started writing this story? Uh, if you've got all night, sure. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, yes, uh, I'd love to talk about that. Um, yeah, it is a long story, though, and I'll try and be brief because anyone who knows my books knows that they're not short. I tend to go on. <laughs> But yes. um, I think this yeah. one I'm reading is 770 words, uh, 770 pages. It's, yes, that's right. It's that's like a shortest. series in a book. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes, it all began, I think, how old am I now? So about 30, 31 years ago, um, specifically with this particular character, the, the main male character of the book, Adam. So I was about 22 and living in Melbourne and I just started to write. Uh, it was quite a short novel for me. Um, and this character was extremely strong and uh, came through and it was all very ordinary, as or so I thought. Um, but, of course, that, that book ended up in the bin. And then I went overseas um, on this quest for, you know, finding my ancestry, um, returning to the the land that my ancestors had come from. I'm a, um, born in Australia, but from various, you know, Scottish, English, uh, Cornish and, and some European background. And I really wanted to get in touch with that part of myself because I had felt like there was something missing, something that I wasn't even, um, well, I felt that I wasn't allowed to articulate um, so I did go back for eight months and spent um, time in uh, England and Wales and Ireland and a bit of, yeah, I went to Europe as well. Uh, I never got to Scotland, unfortunately, one of my great regrets. <laughs> but um, while I was there, of course, I did a lot of walking on the land and just, I don't know, I think it was a time of really, really growing up. I was in my mid-20s. And lots of questions were coming up about um, absolutely everything, I think. Uh, and I was already married at that point. I was married quite young and thinking about wanting to have children. So there was this whole brewing time uh, while I was far away from everything familiar. Anyway, when I came back to Australia, um, before I had a child but I couldn't get work, I started to write again and wrote another version of my novel with this same character, Adam. Um, he wouldn't go away. In fact, he was extremely persistent. And I, I just couldn't find uh, a, a story without him. So I just kept going. But the stories that I wrote just went nowhere. They just didn't seem to have a plot or a, a purpose. But there was something driving me. So there were about, I think there was about three versions of the book. 
by the time I had my daughter, so I had one son and then a daughter by the time I was how old, 30, that's right. Uh, so I'd written about three or four versions of this book by that time. Wow. And um, at this time also, uh, I think it's quite important for me to mention that when I was uh, having my, my first child, I had a bit of what is called, I suppose, a life initiation. You know, I was the birth experience itself was was transformational, but my son was born um, with a a hole in his heart, so he had a VSD, ventricular septal defect, and he was given six months to live. So, um, yeah, so that was that combined with the birthing experience was just totally changed my life, Um, really uh, deeply just touched on all those core things about meaning, uh, my belief system. I had been up until that time a Christian, raised in the church, as many people are, especially from, um, you know, white European background, and I, I just really discovered, particularly from the actual birthing, uh, that I was an amazing being. You know, I birthed this human. <laughs> it was astonishing. And um, and I had been told and taught and somehow internalised, you know, this sense that women were second rate, that they were secondary humans. And suddenly I was like, hey, I've been lied to, seriously. <laughs> um, so that was really the the sort of essence of what happened around that time. So from there on, um, my son had surgery as an infant and recovered, and he's now a pilot. Oh, wow. So he's, he's quite healthy and well, so that's great. But um, I began this long journey of, Unpicking, uh, um, unraveling, uh, rotting down, you know, and and being transformed and trying to figure out, for a start, um, my own history as a female and uh, and the stories uh, from the woman's voice. So when I was writing, um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, in my around when I was about thirty. And when my daughter was quite young, uh, I was writing, uh, gradually bringing the female voice strongly into my stories. Um, If I just sort of go back a bit here to explain what what that refers to, Mm. is the first story that I wrote, which I mentioned when I was about 22. The main female character was actually disembodied. She was like a ghost it was kind of a ghost story, <laughs> but the um, the female uh, was yeah she wasn't she was dead and she the love of this main character um, I'm having trouble remembering it actually Adam he called her forth from being in the spirit world mm. to uh, to be manifest again. Now when I look back at this, of course it's easy in hindsight to see that. Um, I was that dead spirit wow. <laughs> female, you know. I was 
I was um, myself in that, but I was also something more cultural, uh, which is what I've come to realise. Um, so as I was writing each version of this story, the, the character, the, the girl in the story, the young woman, gradually became more and more uh, embodied and more manifest and, and stronger and stronger and stronger. <laughs> By the time I actually stopped writing, uh, I was in my early 30s, starting a new relationship, um, I actually gave up. But the character, the female character was really, uh, she was a lot stronger, but she, again, I didn't have a plot. I didn't have a sense of where it was going. Um, and then I had another child and uh, I just gave up. Literally, I thought that's it. I can't seem to get my shit together to write this book. <laughs> I give up. And I had a lot, lot to do. Um, I was living at that time in a um a off the grid house, you know, a solar passive solar house uh, with no mains water and no mains electricity. Um, not too far out of uh, um, suburban Adelaide hills, but far enough to really be isolated. So, um, with a baby, I should add, <laughs> uh, and it ended up being two more babies. So uh, that. I stopped writing for 10 years and then um, in 2011, uh, you know, I lost three people in a couple of months, My two of my grandparents and a good friend who's Lynn Sinclair Wood, yeah. who was uh, a druid and a teacher of Celtic art and mysteries and, um, yeah, so that was another kind of a real deep shake-up. And then uh, about six months later at the spring equinox, I um, I had a dream one night and woke up the next day and knew I had to write my book. So um, that's kind of the short version and there's a lot more <laughs> in there, um, which I think, yeah, I will um, talk about those things. One of them, of course, as I said, was Lynn herself. She was a huge influence on me and um, over the years that I'd known her, uh, she used to, you know, we talk about things in her workshops and in general, but it was often when we were just catching up for a cuppa that the real interesting chats would happen <laughs> and, um she would tell me quite a lot about her own um, experiences when she was uh, in the British Isles and in Scotland and also a few different perspectives on the meaning of some of the myths mm. and also her involvement in um, feminism and art when she was doing art in the 70s. And that was a huge eye-opener for me because I actually hadn't known at that point that there was such a thing as as a feminist kind of analysis or expression of art. So this was all going into the melting pot of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, along with my passion since childhood for mythology and um, fairy stories and yeah, so um, Lynn was a huge influence 
and an encouragement too. She was really believed in um, my art too, but she, she just encouraged me. She took my ideas and we'd have these great conversations about writing and stories and um, she had um, an idea for a novel that obviously she never got to write. Um, but, yeah, so she was a huge influence in uh, particularly on the mythological side. Um, which but myths? there had been uh, – sorry? I'm just wondering which myths it was that were interesting. Yeah. Well, she's, she talked about um, – uh, well, some of her workshops, and this is how I really got to know her, with the Grail Maidens uh, and the um, sort of the women of Celtic myth, uh, very much sort of based on what she wrote in her book, Creating Form from the Mist. So, you know, there was she went through Bronwyn, Rhiannon, Caradwen, uh, Bridget, the warrior women, Morrigan, sort of the main what would be to anyone who knew Celtic stories, I guess the main characters that are fairly common. Um, so, yeah, I found her perspectives, and particularly because she did have um, that feminist uh, insight um, and voice, but for me, I think that was quite pivotal. Um, you know, instead of just interpreting them, because uh, I, I am a bit of an interpreter, you know, I like to think and ponder on things. And, you know, I'm a lyric girl. I like the lyrics, not just the music. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we were a good match in that respect, I think. We just, um, you know, I fed off her stories. I don't know really how... I affected her, but I certainly enjoyed those those conversations. Um, and I would run ideas past her and, and, yeah, we'd be off having a merry time in myth world. Um, as far as, uh, but, as, yep. far as feminism goes, what sort of things um, influenced you in those conversations and, and were those conversations about feminism what led to the feminist um ideas that are in the book? Uh, definitely, partly. Um, I mean, I, I think the feminist um, road for me began um, really when I had my son, my first child, um, and I, I just seemed to be suddenly awake to questioning uh, why was I, why had I been told this narrative about women, about women's place, particularly in the, the Christian narrative, um, you know, what what we were supposed to do, how we were supposed to behave. Um, and it seemed to me it's it's almost like, like I'm, I wonder if the word's serendipity, but it's like there was these things that unfolded from that point on um, that seemed to feed into the process Um so where I was living, when my son was was recovered from his surgery, I was had access to a bookshop that was literally, you know, five minute walk from the house, and it was a, um, I think it was run by lesbians. I'm not sure. I can't actually remember, but it was it was a very strong like women's bookshop, and there were some books in there that blew my mind. I was like, wow, 
wow, this is, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting, you know. And I bought, I think the first book I bought that really uh, was quite heavy considering that I was just dipping my toes in was by um, Mary Condren. It was The Serpent and the Goddess. And it was about the church in Ireland and how, um, and Bridget, and very strong, powerful, um, angry, you know, just probably just a firebly um, voice discussing, you know, the history of, of um, the Irish church and, and Bridget in particular and the, the uh, I guess, the quashing of the, the female traditions. And um, so that was my introduction to, to feminism. But the reason I picked that book was because it had mythology in it. Mm. You know, it wasn't just a book about sexual politics. It was a book about sexual politics and mythology. So that was what got me. Um, and as I was just going to mention, the next book I got from the same shop actually was Rhianne Isler's works, uh, two of them actually, The Chalice and the Blade and Sacred Pleasure, uh, which has got the subtitle. I actually pulled it off the shelf because I can never remember the subtitle. Uh, Sex, Myth and the Politics of the Body, New Paths of Power and Love. And that was just like, to me, that was like, oh, wow, that's really everything I'm interested in. What sort of subjects um, did it cover within that? Uh, sorry, I didn't quite catch oh, that. Sorry. What sort of subjects did it cover within that book? What did it talk about? That sacred pleasure. Yeah. Um, well, it was. It talked about how uh, Rihanna Isler was asking, you know, why why people are mean and horrible. You know, why they do things the way they do. Why societies can be violent, uh, and why and others can be more peaceful. And so. That was her beginning, and through the chalice and the blade, she'd written quite extensively about those two symbols, the cup, the chalice, which is, of course, a stereotyped, um, it's, it's an understandable symbol, but it's also a stereotype of the feminine uh, gender, and then the, the masculine was the blade. And so she explored all that, and then that moved into sacred pleasure, I think, because it was obviously things that she uncovered that were too big for one book. Mm. Um, so Sacred Pleasure looks at uh, the stories that we're told in society and in religion and myth and how those stories um, are informed by the politics of the society but also inform them. So it's a two-way street kind of thing. Um, with, yeah, how, how you know, those intimate relationships are framed, how people behave towards each other or what's, what's uh, you know, deemed the correct way to behave yeah. for women, the correct way for men. And, uh, you know, it's a hugely complicated subject. Um, and I just thought the book was stunning because she managed to cover a bit of everything. But it, it covered things like also how that manifests in throughout the ages in uh, law and, and economics, in, um, it, you know, in relationship structures, in things like marriage, 
uh, and child rearing. It just it just had everything. Mm. Um, and it really, as an early book that I'd read, it really touched on so many subjects. It was overwhelming, really, and there was a lot to to digest and process. Um, so I had read that book. Uh, let me think. Yeah, several years before I gave up writing. <laughs> Uh, along with at the same time, you know, having all these talks and conversations with Lynn and and doing some uh, stock taking really because I was a bit involved in the pagan community in Adelaide for a while before I went into my this, the new relationship and had a couple more kids. So um, all of this was stewing away and I was continuously reading and thinking and, um, you know, popping out the occasional poem. <laughs> but I couldn't really write much. So for 10 years or so, I think it was, I didn't write. Um, and then one, as I said, I had a dream and woke up and knew that I had to write this book. And what was different was that I knew what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about the themes I read in Sacred Pleasure and I thought, how am I going to do that? How could I write about sexual politics? I'm, I'm not an academic, so I didn't want to write an academic-type book. I wanted to write a story. And um, how could I write about myth, um, the sexual politics, you know, the way I was raised, the way I was, um, I guess, indoctrinated to be, um, you know, the stereotype female in society, uh, and all those layers, you know, I wanted to write about all that plus get the myth in there somehow. <laughs> so I thought at the time, you know, it really came very quickly. It was like that, um, you know, that incubation period in the in the womb, in the cauldron, in the pot. It was, it was a long time for me, but it just came, and when it came, it was there, and and I started to write literally like that day with a notebook and a pencil, and just it took probably a week to get my flow because <laughs> I hadn't literally hadn't written anything for such a long time, apart from uh, you know like editorials for Silver Wheel or a poem, mm. but I hadn't actually written a, an extended piece of prose writing. So um, so I wrote and all of a sudden I just couldn't stop. It was literally like the dam had burst and I wrote for over a year obsessively and um, up into all hours of the night. Wow. <laughs> exhausting myself really and at the same time I was going through the breakup of the relationship and moving house and and two very challenging boys uh, at home. (laughs) So, and my daughter, yeah, at high school. So it was intense, but I was just on fire with it. I just had a purpose. And I really wanted, uh, my my sort of intention to myself was I want to write about, first of all, I want to write with a woman's voice. Uh, I want to write about strong women, not not um, 
strong, I know strong is a bit of a, you know, that strong women kind of, kind of statement is a bit vague really, but I wanted them to have depth and integrity. That's what I really meant. Mm. And experiences that hadn't uh, overwhelmed them to the point where they couldn't return sort of thing. So that's what I mean by strong women. Um, I wanted to write about the ethics of intimacy and sexual politics, which is what was clearly the thread that I was interested in, but also how this is manifest through cultural stories and myth. So <laughs> when I look back, I think, oh, my gosh, I just did not know what I got myself in for. I was, why did I do that? It was so, so much. And yet, of course, that's the, the sort of the fool's journey that they just start the journey without really knowing what is coming. <laughs> um, because I think there was a moment when I was in the second novel that I suddenly was like, oh, 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 dear. Can I write this? Am I allowed to? Oops. <laughs> okay, I'll just do it anyway. I'll just go for it. <laughs> um, what was that about? Yes. Well, that was that was getting more into, um, I suppose, having a voice about critiquing uh, main what is perceived as mainstream ideas about, I mean, sex and and um, you're not supposed to critique sex. You know, that's one of the things that people will say. It's private. You know, whatever goes on between two adults behind closed doors got no, no none of my business. But I had found. Um, but actually, it is. It's not other people's business as such, but it's it's very public. It's it's a political thing. It's not a. It's not just all private. Um, that was the this turning point when I began to see patterns in the in the stories and and try and figure out a way of telling my own story that might not yeah just highlight or or bring into the foreground some of those questions and issues. And getting back to the character, of course, Adam, um, he was there again <laughs> when I started to write. I knew I was going to speak from the woman's point of view, so the narrator is a female. Um, but Adam was there and I thought, okay, you're here again. What what are you doing here? Um and I tried to change his name because I thought Adam sounds a bit, you know, ordinary. Uh, but no, he was Adam. And I think that in some ways, I've said this to a few people, um, trying not to sound too weird, but I do think he's like a real guide, uh, a kind of, I wouldn't say a muse, but a, uh, a, a sort of a, a contact on the other side. <laughs> and... Sure. And very yeah, it's very hard to explain, but it's it's like the presence and persistence of this character who just I don't know it's like driven me. Uh, so I feel like we we work together in many ways. Um, but that's the writer's you know my secret world kind of thing. <laughs> But he is obviously very important in the story uh, on a, a deep inner level. But the way he manifests in the story is another thing, you know, the fact that he's a very, on purpose, a very 
privileged white man, you know, that was key because he had to have that crisis of consciousness and waking up to his place um, as we all do in our own ways. So, um, yes, uh, there's probably uh, so much more I could say about the journey. I did, oh, that's right, I did write down here on my little piece of paper that uh, the other things that were really important, this asked about stories um, I talked about with Lynn, one of them was the sovereignty story of um, Jane Ragnell yeah. and Sir Gawain. So that was actually a story I had heard as a young teenager as well. But over the years it kept popping up, it kept coming back can around you, and around. Can you summarise that story for anyone that hasn't heard it before? Okay. Um, well, it's sort of this particular version is in the, in the Arthurian uh, collection of stories and um, King Arthur is, you know, kidnapped or something by uh, um, a sort of a giantesque figure and to save his life, there's a question that must be answered. Um, A deal was made, you know, so he uh, calls upon his uh, a knight to... um, Oh, sorry, he... That's the end of the story. <laughs> he um, he wants to find out the answer to the question. The question is, what is it that women desire? What you know, what do women want, basically? And Lynn used to tell this story in her workshops as well, and she'd always put it in a very modern context um, to really make us think, actually, about what the story might mean. So, yeah, what do women most desire? So Arthur can't quite get any good answers from anybody and is resolved to meet his fate at the hands of this giant character. And um, on the way back, he's come back to the giant. He's He comes across this, you know, old hideous hag woman in the woods and she's uh, delighted. I mean, she knows the answer, and she says that she'll help him out, and and she does, and and gives the answer to the the giant, and he's set free. And of course, the bargain with with the old hag was that that Arthur would give her anything she wanted, if only she would help him. And of course, what does she want? But she wants his most beautiful knight in marriage. <laughs> So, yeah, he um, has to keep his word, but nobody wants to marry this old woman except for Gawain, who does the duty because he, um, you know, is loyal to his king. So he steps forward and, and, and says, yes, he'll do it. He'll marry the, the old hideous woman. She's meant to be hideous. And, and of course, the enchantment... Um, she presents him with on their wedding night is, you know, you can have me by day beautiful or or by night beautiful, uh, but you can't have me both. And this is a very brief version, but it's mm. much more interesting. But, of course, he can't, he can't choose, and that's the point, that he can't choose and he won't. He asks, he says she must choose, and that is the breaking of the enchantment of giving her sovereignty over herself and and in turn he receives sovereignty over himself 
So that's sort of the story in a nutshell. And, um, and she's, it's like, she's beautiful all the time after that point. Oh, Is that right? y- yes, well, that's the, that's the way it goes. And, and it's interesting, I'm actually going to write about that story, I think, in this book I'm writing at the moment, because I've had some more thoughts about that. Right. <laughs> it yes. takes me about 20 years to, to, to get to the, well, I don't think I have got to the, the bottom of the story, but right. it certainly um, shows me that myth has got lots of, tangled components but so um, this, this story was how, how did that story relate to the way that you um look at relationships in the stories well that was one of the stories I wanted to play out in the story so obviously um with the first book Mist uh the the, the premise is that the main character the woman Roshin uh meets and um is attracted to Adam, who is younger than herself. Uh, he's only 14 years younger than her, but the complication arises, and, and this, this is another theme of the book, of course, the, the, the bisexuality and the polyamory, mm. which were devices I wanted to, for the polyamory, you know, specifically to use that to look at some of the, the prejudices and assumptions that, we make about relationships. Um, the bisexuality was because Adam was always bisexual um, right from the beginning when I didn't even know what that was actually <laughs> in terms of I didn't know there was a word for it. Right. I just knew that he, in the first version of my novel years ago, he loved a man as well and it never seemed um, to be an issue for me However, I was very aware that socially other people might think, oh, this is a bit odd. (laughs) So anyway, getting back to the present. um, So in terms of the story of of sovereignty, uh, the two characters um, are younger than them, the the two lovers are younger than Rasheen and particularly the character of, of Ben because he's quite young but he was meant to represent that youthful energy of uh, partly of rebellion and, um, you know, when you're young, you think you know everything and you, you particularly think you're immortal and there's a sense of that that energy of, of taking that risk, you know, doing something really bold or different. Um, and I, I didn't really do that so much myself until I was a bit older so in some ways I was working through um, lots of things about myself in this story <laughs> with all of the characters. But with with um, the younger men and the older woman, I wanted to actually have that as, as the basic story sort of hidden in there in plain sight, so to speak, um, so I could explore what that would look like and what does sovereignty mean and what what does it look like in a relationship? And, um, uh, yes, so there are lots of the, the questions uh, that I try to not necessarily get answers to, but I certainly try to uh, address and bring into the, the foreground of my mind and hopefully anyone else's who's reading the story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I've gone off on a little wander down a path there and I can't remember where I was before. 
Oh, it's so fascinating. We were just talking about your influences and then we were talking about yeah. that myth and how that tied into it all. But, um, mm. yeah, I, I was wondering if it might be a good idea to sort of, um, like, if how would, how would you describe the books to people in a few, like as a blurb? Like how would you explain yeah, what it is okay. that you're doing with the books? Like what is the... What's the main drive behind it all? Yep. What other books okay. about? That happens to me a fair bit. People say, what's your book about? And I just look at them and I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's <laughs> so hard. <many> things. <laughs> because I have put a lot of themes in. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's meant to be, I call it, you know, my little statement is an adventure in love and intimacy. Mm. Because what I was really wanting to write about was, um, the ethics of intimacy, again, that's something that was written about in Sacred Pleasure. Like what is an ethic of intimacy? Um, how do we um, untangle that personal political uh, knot of, of the way humans interact? Not just the sexual relationships but, you know, parent-child relationships, friendships, you know, m- male-female friendships and and there is an emphasis in that on the sort of heterosexual because that's the way our culture operates or has operated predominantly for such a long time. And so to shake that up a bit, um, you know, I had to uh, and I wanted to anyway write about bisexuals. Uh, there's a few uh, lesbian characters and, and gay men and, and I wanted to just have it as these are differences, but why are they different? Because the dynamics can be played out by anybody. You know, those dynamics of the, the sort of what you would call the patriarchal or dominator culture. Um, again, dominator culture is, is a Rhianne Isler term um, that she uses to avoid gendering uh, the actual dynamics because they can actually be committed by anybody, acts of domination. But, of course, the system has been that the, the, the male has been the dominator in general and the female has been the subjugated in general. Uh, they can change roles, but the overarching system has been a, a male-dominant society for thousands of years, really, So that um, challenge to that uh, idea and getting into that was where, you know, mixing up the relationships and and confronting uh, even the language I used around uh, talking about the feelings and, and of course, I, I also write about, you know, the sexual experiences of some of the characters and that, that was, again, that was a choice that I made because a lot of the way, you know, I had to unravel in my own mind and my own self um, all of this internalised, yeah, these internalised systems, um, the way things um, came out on paper in that, particularly that 18 months where I was handwriting uh, I would write some absolute trash because I, what I'd realise, I'd write it and write it and then I'd read back and think, oh, well, there's all the stereotypes. I've just got them out of my system. Wow. But 
I didn't want to say that. That's not what I want to say. Oh, gosh, look at that. Ooh, you know, it was like I was really revealing to myself how I had internalised a lot of the stereotypes, the domination and the submission stuff, the um, the performances of these gendered ideas. So uh, writing about all of that was, as I said, that was my goal to, to address that. But in a story that somehow might be interesting, <laughs> and the story, of course, um, particularly for Mist, was the sort of the coming together of the main characters and the, how they um, establish the fact that they want to be together and that they're going to take the risk, that they're up for the journey um, and of course, I'm trying to remember. Missed. I've got to go back a few books. It's a long way back. Back in my mind. Oh, and the um, and at the same time, uh, there's this that what you would call, I suppose, the spiritual element, the undercurrents, uh, the sort of the framework of the of the whole thing, uh, and how that was woven into the lives. Uh, the characters. I mean, as a as a pagan and trying to understand how, um, you know, it's not just a thing that you do for like the stereotype was often to say it's not just like church on Sunday. This is a, a life way. Mm. This is um, how it how it is just embedded. Well, how does it get to be embedded in everything you do and everything you think uh, so that there's no sort of um, disruption? I mean, obviously, we're human and, and we, we uh, are distractible. <laughs> uh, I know that for sure. Um, just with the domestic world, you know, it's very can be very draining. But I think... Um, I really wanted to weave that in somehow to make it uh, almost doable, although, you know, there is an element of it being a bit fantastical as well in the story. I'm quite aware of. Yeah. Um, I found it wonderful. Because, I find it wonderful how you make it so uh, it's just part of the daily life of the characters. It's You talk about things like the runes and these rituals they do and meditation journeys and crystal healing and and you know, psychic yeah. senses and all these things and spirits just talking to people and it's all, oh, just yes. a all the time part of the whole thing nobody bats an eyelid they're just like oh there's that character talking to me um you know or oh I'm reminded of this rune that means this thing yeah. and, or oh let's just do a let's just do an aura healing it's because that's how we live you know it's it's kind of wonderful I love it um, I, I think that's one of the most beautiful yeah. parts of the book is that it, it makes that so normalised. It's yes. Well, I guess I, it, I guess I have to say that that's the way I think too. Mm. You know, and and I suppose I was thinking about this today um, that that's part of you know the risk of writing such an intimate book is that I'm exposing myself in many ways. I'm not going to say I'm not in the book. Of course, I am. I'm in lots of the characters, actually, <laughs> um, some more than others, but that sense of, you know, the way I am, you know, I might just ask my kids when we go for a walk, oh, mum, you know, <laughs> because I'm always talking about something 
um, or pausing to admire, you know, the shape of, of, uh, you know, a leaf or something. And then I might actually, because they're my children, I will mention something about, you know, this spirit world or, um, even something from my book, which to them I'm sure is this magical mystery. They really have got no idea, <laughs> but they joke about it with me. So I guess in many ways, yes, that, that, um, tone of the book was very much about the way my mind works. It's just all happening all at the same time and stirring a pot of soup is, you know, I'm thinking about the ancestors and how the women, um, chanted over the the food and sang their songs perhaps back in Scotland. Um, and a friend of mine did say to me once when I came up with this idea and I was running it past her and saying, well, you know, I feel a bit naughty saying inventing something, inventing a tradition or inventing a, a, a ritual gesture. She said, well, somebody had to invent one once upon a time that now we just say it's this sacrosanct tradition. But once upon a time, there was a woman sitting at her hearth and she made it up, you know, and, we, and by saying making it up, we don't mean that in a in a trivialising way. It's quite a, um, a profound connection really, mm. you know, because you do, I, I don't know about you, but I have, you know, when you're doing mundane tasks often they're so meditative and all of a sudden you have these wonderful flashes of insight yeah um i love me yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love making connections between uh you know the cosmic and the ordinary and i and i do that in because i'm so heavily involved in in the household and the care of children that's the way i do it you know the next person might do it in a different way but for me, that's what how it happens, and um, and so I guess in my novels, I've tried to weave that into the everyday mm-hmm. as well. Um, and you're also, and I guess, um, would you like to talk a little about your companion book that you're writing to go along with the novels? What tell me a little bit about this companion book? What's it going to be about? Okay. Um, well, the companion book actually in some ways started before the novels. Oh. Um, I've got many notes over the years that I kept and I found one recently, a big piece of paper I'd had out on the lounge room floor, these columns and circles, and it was all about the nine. So the tradition of the nine is common throughout many mythologies, nine priestesses, nine goddesses, nine mothers, mm. um, lots of nines, and um, I thought, well, okay, I'm going with the nine <laughs> and and the triad and that sort of thing. So anyway, I was doing this sort of note-taking for years, and so when I started writing Mist, um, it was partially already, you know, cooked. Um, I guess it was a bit like making bread. You know, you had to knead it and then let it rise for a bit. So that was the, the initial stage. Uh, so the basic tradition is, which is called Pictish Spirit. <clears throat> uh, I picked Pictish, by the way, because I didn't want Celtic. I wanted something that was older, but also less, we don't know too much about the Picts, really. And, and being possibly the Indigenous 
um, people of Scotland and Scotland only really being inhabited less than 12,000 years, you know. Um, I thought it's vague enough for me to get away with that, to be completely honest. Yeah, right. But it also it also has a tradition of the Pictish being the painted or the, the tattooed people. Um, and there is also a, a, um, a, a, I think I was reading in one book that it could also mean that they're just the people. You know, like often a people will call themselves the people in various different cultures. So um, the picture spirit I sort of came up with was the sense of um, Kaliak, was the old, old woman, the, the earth, you know, the landscape, that sort of aspect, uh, Bridget or Vrija and her, I guess, coming through the Mesolithic into the Neolithic with um, more tool making, um, the use of metalwork, and all of the symbolisms around that. And then there was the real Iron Age mythology of uh, from the the Irish stories, um, Skaha and Aoife. So they, those two women were very firmly, you know. You know, set in a time, but possibly referred to an earlier time. So I don't know that that's, you know, nobody really knows. They're spoken about as, um, and written down in a, in a particular historical period, but as if they pre existed mm. and probably did, you know, the, the sense of, uh, so I think there's a Scottish island, the island of the big women. And that sort of thing. Um, so they're the four or three, depends, because I often um, connect Bridget and Kaliak together. Yeah. Uh, they're sort of like the the triple spiral, the, the axis of the whole thing. And the nine were various aspects of those three or four, you know. Right. <laughs> and... Then, um, so when I was uh, getting all this together, I thought what I'd like to do, I've written novels to talk about a lot of these subjects and I thought I'd like to actually write about why I write, I'm writing, if that makes sense, and how I got to be at the place where I'm at. So I started to write um, my journey, I suppose, that how I came to understand what goddess meant to me, what I understood about the feminist journey, um, looking back at my interest in, you know, history and geology as well, why I picked the Isle of Skye and these particular mythological characters. Um, and it all sort of seemed to look like it was going to be a little book of its own. And there was um, a, a woman that I... I've connected with who lives in the US who was very keen for me to do this. I must have mentioned it in passing and she was very excited by the idea. So I thought, yeah, I, I think I could do this. And um, so I just, I've divided the, the book into three sections. The first section will be um, sort of like, yeah, the story of that I've come to understand. So it's not necessarily set for all time, but 
um, you know, the the story of, as I said, who is the goddess? How did I come to that that place? And that was my the sort of spiritual journey. Um, looking back over the time of, you know, the Paleolithic, the Mesolithic, Neolithic, and into the modern or the Iron Age and the modern world. And then the second part of the, um, oh, and how all of those things kind of uh, uh, affect my story writing. The second part of the book is to do with the myth. Um, So I look a bit more into what I've learnt about Bridget and Kaliak and Skaha and Aoife and also things about, you know, the Australian environment, my process about how I've tried to place myself here as someone who's not Indigenous and where and how, you know, to foster a sense of connection, uh, which has been, a you know, probably the, the consistent journey for me since I was introduced to paganism uh, and nature-based spirituality. And then the third part of the book is going to be about more about picture spirit as such, so a bit about possible ritual, um, all of the elements that I talk about in the books, uh, in the stories, so things like the the tree, the kulans, the nine, the, um, the kulans being the chieftain, uh, the um, I don't know where you've read up to in the book, Julie, but um, you know the black pot, um, the other world, underworld, star world, all of these elements I want to sort of talk about um, and flesh out and and go into more detail about uh, the nine, particularly there's nine matriarchs and nine kulans, so chieftains. And each of those nine have nine times nine, um, how would I describe them? They're sort of aspects or emanations. That's how I see them. Mm. And in the latest novel, Storm, uh, again, this was not something I actually planned. So this is where I sometimes think that I'm, I've got a bit of a direct line with Adam into this other world. But... Um, what the nine drums, which is the name of this book, the companion book, where the nine drums come into it. And um, so that came about while I was writing Storm towards the end of that book. And it was quite, for me, it was quite a profound process. Um, it, uh, yeah, consolidated a lot of things. So that's, that will be the third part of the book. So, yes, um, and as I said, it's called Nine Drums and it's a Pipti Spirit handbook or companion book. I haven't quite decided yet. When's that going to be available? Well, I've actually written quite a lot, uh, but I think I'm, I'm kind of like pulled apart. I'm wanting to write that book. I'm quite passionately involved in that at the moment, especially since my youngest was diagnosed with diabetes. It's been like a real researchy therapy type thing. And the novel is also pulling me, the the fifth novel, Ice, um, in another direction because um, I know I have the novel in my head, 
it's just so frustrating. I just actually find it really hard to find time at the moment and trying to just go with the flow of, of um, life <laughs> but find the discipline that I had. I had a lot of discipline for quite a few years because I was just on fire with this um, outpouring but it's eased off a bit and there have been, yeah, as I think this year there's been a, a real blow to my energy levels. So, you know, it could be another year um, Takes for that. Time. Yeah. I'm also very hard on myself because really when I think about it, I, I'm expecting myself to write a book in a year and I'm like, that's silly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> These books are massive. <laughs> yeah. They happen when um, they happen, don't they? I think I, I was very fortunate when I wrote Mist. That took me um, only a couple of years, probably two years to write. And Win took nine months. <clears throat> so I was really tapping into something then. But it's, again, it's like the flow has eased off and it's steadier and it's almost slowed a little bit, mainly because of my own personal energy levels. But. Um, I certainly can't write in the evenings anymore. You know, I used to spend a lot of hours at night when my children were asleep, but they don't tend to sleep anymore. They're <laughs> into their teens and that changes everything. Um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually quite, you know, really, to be honest too, I struggle every day with, with nine drums in particular. I think, why am I doing this? Does anybody care? <laughs> And then I think, well, it's not really about anybody else. It's about me being able to look at my journey. It's like, again, uh, a stock-taking process of um, sense-making because I have had a lot happen in the past seven years. So it is, it's really um, a sorting process in a way. But I think there will be some... some um, valuable things for anyone interested or, you know, the few, the readers who've enjoyed my stories might find it interesting, uh, particularly the elaboration on the the picture spirit elements that are in the, the novels. Um, yeah, I'm sure anything that's, you know, similarly inspired by that mythology and feminist outlook and challenging those social norms to explore different kinds of ways of being will be fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is It is really um, a huge area too. Once you lift the lid, it, it is. It's like just roots of a tree. It just goes everywhere. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's something that is ever finished. I, I thought I was going to write four novels initially. <laughs> well, I got towards the end of Storm and I realised I still had a lot to say. Um, so I thought, oh, my son just said to me, go on, Mum, write some more books. Just write three more. And he gave me various <laughs> names for them. Oh, yeah. Lava was one of them because nice. they make fun of me all the time with my books, my one-word titles. <laughs> so I was having to write Lava and Fire and, and I said, no, 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 I'll figure this out. What are they so far? <laughs> There's mist. I've got uh, mist, wind, flowers, storm, and I'm writing ice at the moment, and then there'll be river and stone. Right. So the stone is last because that's like um, 
getting back to the bones of the earth, mm. you know, bringing it all down again and ready to build. No. So it's sort of like an ending and a beginning in my mind, and I haven't written it yet, so we will see. Yes. But, um, it's a fascinating I'm, journey. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a really healing process for me uh, as well. You know, the writing just on one level is, is a real um, deep processing. I've poured myself into the books really emotionally, um, lots of crying, sobbing, <laughs> um, for various reasons, you know, working through my own issues, seeing also a, a visionary side that, you know, the ability to envision what might be and not, you know, I know that there can be a criticism of being idealistic, but I think it's more about you know, you envision so much and then whatever comes to pass is what was possible um, within the visioning. And I've recently read a book uh, by Brian Swim, The Universe is a Green Dragon, and uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. But that sense of uh, one part he describes, you know, the say the the explosion of the supernova, the flaring forth, the devouring um, of one form, releasing all of this in, into the possibility of, you know, I, I don't know the scientific terms, but all the matter and the particles and the and the elements. And then but what comes out of those is not guaranteed. But there's so much potential there. And I think that's, for me, what just the basic creative process has been in writing, that there's there's so much there. I can only pick certain things out. Um, and for myself, I can vision what is potential for, not, not even for myself, but for people, uh, perhaps for um, the society, perhaps just simply on a very simple level for, you know, a practice for a women's group or a, or a mixed group of whatever who might want to use um, some of the ideas and the framework um, as a way of, of a, like a map, which is how I kind of describe the picture spirit world is it's a map that I've made for myself uh, and it might be useful to someone else. If that was an outcome, that would just be incredible. But it's it's a one possibility um, out of this vast, uh, uh, yeah, visioning explosion, <laughs> if that makes sense. Because um, I guess when you're talking about creativity, it, it sort of goes over into a, an area where it's very hard to articulate um, the process it's yeah. beyond words. And I guess we can only refer to it sideways. Um, I did want to mention, of course, the, the musical side of yeah. of my writing. I've written because um, the character of Adam in the story is a musician. Um, so music... It, it, the heart of it was going to be important, you know, musically, even though it's a novel. <laughs> you can't hear the music 
but I was very fortunate to um, have Casey Stevenson um, collaborate a little bit with a few of my poems and songs, and he put some beautiful music to a couple of them, Priestess in particular, and um, it was very special. Sorry, were there others? What were the others? Was, he sang, um, the first one he sang was called, it was the song for Skaha, which was in, it's in Mist, and it's the song that Adam was had written for his mentor on the Isle of Skye, the old woman. And um, it was uh, about the actual landscape, but it was also about uh, basically, you know, his expression of um, love of the goddess, the goddess being, you know, nature, the universe, life itself, and the form of of the the female teacher, his his um, mentor. So it was a, a special song for me that actually came out of a conversation that I'd had with Lynn about her experiences on the Isle of Lewis. So, the, you know, there's always a complicated story behind everything. But, um, yeah, he put, sang that a cappella. That, is that the right word? Just no instrument. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and it's on YouTube. Okay. And it, and it was just really powerful for me to hear. And the first time he sang it was at my sort of dining table. Just um, so powerful. Uh, just I was crying, of course. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, that was just, it was like bringing, breathing life into something that had been within me, particularly in the character that is said to have written the song for, you know, nearly 30 years. So it was really, really a special gift, I thought, that he gave, his, the gift of his music and his voice. And he sang a couple of songs at my book launch for Mist um, as Spiral Dance sang another one that I wrote, hmm. and that was really good. He was very popular. I think, I think he um, made the evening really. <laughs> um, and then we recorded Priestess uh, and did a professional recording with the idea. Hopefully, one day, we another friend of mine who works with film, we have an idea to make a short. Um, almost like a film clip, I suppose, to Priestess that is meant to kind of give a bit of a a vibe about the story and and lure people's interest. But it hasn't happened yet for one reason or another. But we're still working on it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the music, you know, poetry, it's another way of expressing the inexpressible um, so that was going to, I'm not, a, 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 I wouldn't call myself a strong poet or anything, but I, I do occasionally pop one out. Well, but, I, I would call you a strong well, poet. Quite nice. <laughs> I, I'm quite, quite pleased with them, you know. Yeah, so the, the music side of it, even though, as I said, I can't, you can't hear the songs when you're reading, you can make them up in your own head or whatever. Hmm. And I certainly have songs in my head when I'm writing. But on another level, the the character of Adam being a musician uh, and a very gifted one, I have to say, he's meant to be super, super gifted, is that that was also talking about 
the the resonance, you know, this kind of um, the harmony, the universal. It was quite a cosmic thing, actually. Um, that he carries. That's his particular gift, but that's how he is able to to do his work, his healing, his his compassion. Um, it, yeah, it was just just the sort of suggestion that it resonated with music and I am not a musician so I really don't know anything about music really um but I know what music does for me and how it makes me feel and you know people know it can it can move you to tears and and joy and such complicated emotions so that was the sense I wanted to give Adam um because that's how he is alive for me uh, in my imagination. So that was the best way I could express that. Of the mountain waving a volcanic sea. You fed the shoulders for sided eagle, your belly filled with water sea. You wear a crown of eucalypt, your skin is brown like a shield tree. Voice calls me in flaming spirals, see I blind in the smoke. You're a priestess of the mountains, growing up from the ground. You're a priestess of the mountains Help me to understand Why don't you take my hand You're a priestess of the valley, your robes of needles, moss and leaves Your ancient fingers are long and twisted, the forest floor unite me weep You bleed your sorrow from the divine, the weak carries your silent roar and I will seek you though I know the ways to go to your door You're a priestess of the valley 
understand Why don't you take my What was the song that Spiral Dance did for you? Uh, that one was called uh, Green Jack and the Queen. Uh, that was a song I wrote, and I think I wrote the tune for that as well. I wrote, I've written a couple of tunes. that well, They did record one that's on their dub, oh, their album oh, Through a Silver and Doorway. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was the Did you do that hard the work for that, that, that uh, album as well? Was that your artwork? I did Yes, I did the artwork for Through a Sylvan Doorway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Because you yeah, so we should talk about your artwork. Is that the artwork is something. inspired by the stories in the books as well? Or is well, it I do. Yeah, I did work a little bit through some of the ideas I had um, or tried to. Uh, 
but I, yeah, art for me is is a bit of a struggle um, in terms of the visual art. You know, I've I've I think I I could be better and and do more with my drawing and painting, but I I just struggle with it so much. Partly because I'm so <laughs> committed to writing, so there's only so much I can do, especially um, as a mum. But um, I think your artwork's mm-hmm. amazing. You what's uh, what's your Facebook page called for your art? Um, Egg and Serpent Studio. Yeah, right. I'll pop a link for that mm-hmm. in the show notes so people Thank can you. have a look. But um, I do like making things. Anything, you know, I like to make things with my hands. Um, and for anything creative, uh, and and actually, when I wasn't writing for ten years, I was making children's toys. I was spinning and knitting, and um, you know, just generally anything I could make. I make quilts. Uh, I had to be doing something, and I know that that's all part of the art. You know, I shouldn't just say it's my drawing is my art because it's more than that. But I think that the ideas that I have in my head that I'd like to express um, is more of a discipline for art that I haven't yet got to. I did try and go to art school, um, gosh, three years ago now, yeah, three years, and I just couldn't maintain it because things were getting really difficult at home. Uh, So I had to leave. But... um, I did learn a lot. I also learned how much commitment I needed if I wanted to do those pictures <laughs> that I have in my head. I had this concept of doing, you know, pictures of all the characters in my novels, wow. not not even just the story characters in terms of the mundane world. Um, it was the, the the other world characters, the picture spirit characters, mm-hmm. the goddesses and the and the kulans and. And the matriarchs, you know, I have this real strong image of, of the one of them. She's called Painted Mare, um, sitting at her spinning wheel. And another one, because um, I try to describe them a little bit in the story. I don't go into too much detail. I like to leave a little bit to the imagination. But I have my own pictures and I just don't feel up to the task yet. But it may just be a matter of timing, you know, that when I've written the novels, then I'll turn to the the artistic expression of the things that I wrote about and, it's, and um, it's so branch out. So many of the people that I've spoken to are, who are creatives and are making things and that work with, um, you know, inspiration and creativity say that they just can't ask, you know, you can't just sit down and go, well, I'm going to do that today. Everybody, no. <laughs> everybody is just like, oh, and then I was at the shops or I was just, you know, I was just doing yep. this thing and then suddenly it just arrived and then I had to do it. It's like, you yes. know, we can't, we can't plan yes. these things. It just happens when it happens. Absolutely. Um, that's very true. Uh, I did a drawing this year, earlier this year of, um, oh, no, it was late last year, of a woman. I haven't met her, but she uh, runs a um, the Ancestral Mothers of Scotland Um retreat that she does every year and I had a picture of her in my mind I just wanted to put some reindeer antlers on her head so I did this little sketch it was just in my art journal and I it 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 never intended to be anything 
but I had to do it that day. And I did the whole drawing that day, which was incredible. Um, And I ended up posting it to her and she, and I think she said it was quite a good likeness. So that was really satisfying. But that was like the only thing I've really done for a long time. And I thought, why? It just popped out and then it's, you know. I think it's like um, it's like the story of Taliesin, you know. You, stir, you have to stir the cauldron for a really long time and then suddenly it just burns you and then you, ah, had it by accident. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Well, that makes sense for the, um, for the 10-year incubation yeah. I had for mist. Yeah. It was like this long stirring and extremely uh, – I, I became very depressed as well. In fact, I would say that my book book writing process has been a process of, of um, medication. You know, it's been healing for me, but it's it's been um, a teacher of the treasures of that aspect, which, you know, I don't want to sound like – uh, everyone who's depressed can can do that because it's all different kinds of experiences. But for me, it was it, this is the way it worked, and I think um, yeah that that idea of stirring that pot for so long. Um, there's another story. I think it's the Irish story of Finn that sits at the fire watching the salmon. Sam, similar story. Yeah. And he his thumb is burned. It's it's that patience and, and sometimes, you know, especially with depression, um, there is a sense of that awful, heavy endlessness to it. I had a dream, another dream, um, a few years back. I think it was quite a turning point where in the dream there was a swan. Now the swan, of course, is the, the spirit bird of Adam in the story. Um, was on the lake and, and I had to get the feather, but the, the swan was not coming to me. I had to go to the swan. So I got into the lake and swam out and I realised the lake wasn't even very deep. It was just, a, you know, quite a shallow lake. Um, and I was quite down. I mean, I shouldn't say down, I was depressed. And um, I dove down under the water to I don't know why because there wouldn't have been a feather under the water but this is a dream and I went to the bottom of the of of the lake and put my hand in the silt and in the silt I just sifted my hand through the stones and and the most profound feeling of joy was overcame me uh, as I did that and then I rose up and I went to the bank and lying on the bank was the swan's feather so for me that was saying you know, that actually being in that state and, and that long, sometimes it feels um, pointless, uh, definitely, you know, this despairing feeling that, that there is something about, it's, I can't, you can't even explain it. It's, I've used the word magical, say, because um, that's open to interpretation, but it's uh, possibly alchemical, you know, that magical transformational experience where suddenly the the brew turns, it shifts from what it was in its potential and then 
you know, I presume this is the sort of thing that happens with, um, you know, distillation and alcohol. You know, suddenly it does its thing <laughs> and you have the elixir. Um, and for me, that was that dream that that moment happened um, and was brought to me conscious in, in a conscious form in a dream. So I already had made that shift. Mm. Um but, uh, yes, you're right. Now I'm beating myself up about not getting enough time to write, and yet I know the, ex- I know the process, I know the experience yeah. uh, that, that it will come. I have actually no doubt that it will happen, <laughs> but I'm an impatient person in, in some ways, uh, in other ways very patient. But when, you, when you're carrying around a story, that's um, just literally waiting to be written down. <laughs> it can get a bit a bit uh, frustrating. But I have learned through this process, I guess, um, the intensity of it since 2011, so it's, yeah, it's about seven years, is to trust that it will happen and that it has its own, like you said, it has its own time. Mm. And that is a mystery. Yeah. That warming, you know, it doesn't it doesn't um, work to a schedule, and certainly not our society's schedule. <laughs> it, um, it's not convenient at all. In fact, <laughs> no. But what comes out in the end is worth waiting for, for sure. Well, They're one hopes books. so. Yes, it's been really yeah. interesting talking to you about it all and hearing how it all came together and what all the different influences were and, yeah. Yeah, there's so many aspects and threads and yeah. pathways and, and um, loops and knots and, yeah, lots of things. But yeah. I'm, I'm always very grateful, I guess, because, um, you know, I do have a, a – uh, somebody said I was humble, but I'm like, it's not that. I think I just – you know, my personal struggle has been to accept that I could actually do something, write something that somebody might be interested in. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I did get a lot of good feedback when I, I handed out the draft chapters when I first started writing. It's a very and brave that was, book. That was, yeah, I felt I scared a lot. <laughs> it's incredibly vulnerable. Um, Have you ever had bad feedback like have you ever had people challenge you in some way about it because it's really confronting in some ways I imagine for people that have a very narrow view of the world you know yeah no I haven't actually now either that's because I don't know you know I only know the people who've read it who've contacted me Mm. so and they've all pretty much given me good feedback and Mm. some some you know, very good feedback. So obviously there's a couple of people that love the story, which is wonderful. Um, but the only thing one person said was that it was a little bit too, you know, with the sex, I went into too much detail. And I just thought it was, I just accepted that. I thought, okay, I didn't really want to go into a full-on explanation why I was doing that, like what the purpose was because this person didn't seem to be on that page. Mm. You know, I thought they probably wouldn't um, really appreciate that. Um, So, yeah, uh, so everything I've had has been that it is confronting and particularly 
it gets more confronting in the next book. Yeah, right. And I, I would, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, expect anybody to read my books, but I often think if you get through Mist, it'd be great if you could keep going <laughs> <laughs> because it does get more um, confronting. And and I was given the the most beautiful compliment. Um, it, and this was when it was the draft chapters of Wind, so that's book two. Um, in the early chapters, there's a particular scene. I don't really want to tell you what it is because I don't want to give it away, but um, I got the feedback was that that was an extremely profound scene. And I just, it just, that was to me made it all worthwhile, you know, Um and, and that was the scene that I was terrified of writing. But I wrote it because I felt like uh, I wanted to, to write it uh, in a certain way and try and evoke something. Um, and I felt that obviously I succeeded for that person. Mm. Hopefully, you know, it would um, touch others similarly, which since then, because that was, again, as I said, that was the draft. Mm. Um but it has. I've had, um, yeah, a couple of people have felt very, I guess, yeah, very moved and very um, changed by it. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that, that's been the most wonderful feedback I could hope for, really, <laughs> you know. So, um, yes, but I had to challenge myself mm. to do it. Oh yeah, no. I can't. Im- I, I think I like my book. I think I was trying very hard to make everyone happy. <laughs> At the same yeah. time, I was trying to say something a bit different. But um, it, I think it is hard. It's really hard to oh. say something that you have conviction over that you know someone is going to like that. Mm. You know, someone's going to arc up over it. You know, someone's going to be oh, be challenged yes. by something in that, and they're not going to be able to deal with it. You know, that's yeah. it's very brave to put out something like that. Um, well, I think I think that's um, you know, but it needs to be said at the same a subject, time. You know. A subject that could possibly you know talked about. I mean, in the second and third, I'm trying to think what it's. I think the second book, I um, I explore the story of Math Son of Mathonwe. Oh, yeah through actually I think it's through book two and three and um and that involves lots of discussions about all sorts of things um but the theme of that book is very to me anyway somebody else might have a different perspective but it was to do with um violence and sexual violence yeah right it was it was like bringing that into conversation through various means and through various characters. Mm. And then in, in um, Flowers, the third book, the the conversation in the mentoring was to do with pornography mm. uh, and prostitution. So it, very volatile subjects. Yep. And I, I've been terrified, actually. You know, I'm used to the fact that the book's out there, but I know that not many people are really reading it. I have, you know... I can see that, that there are sales every now and again. But it still is worrying because we're all human. Nobody likes to be attacked. 
um, yeah. or willfully or willfully misinterpreted because mm. that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but the thing with a story, I think a novel. Um, as I said, I wasn't an academic, so I didn't have um, the training or or a mentor to take me through writing a thesis or something. But I thought one of, a beautiful way of discussing difficult subjects is by writing it as a story, yeah. by saying here are, say, four characters or five. Um, I think in, in Wind, the group, the mentoring group gets up to about six and they talk about things and have different points of view, ask different questions. Mm. One of the characters is a bit, he's a bit of a, he has a temper, that's Ben. <laughs> the other character might be a bit, you know, not quite convinced. He's, he feels a bit defensive. Then there's one who's, who's, you know, older. Um, and so they've all got their own little perspective, mm. but, at the same time, they're all on a similar trajectory. So there's not a real blazing argument. You know, I didn't want to go into that specifically. I wanted there to be, again, a model for conflict that doesn't have to degenerate mm. into um, mindless, you know, insults. It was like, mm. actually, you can share your perspectives respectfully. <laughs> Yeah. So that's that's another way um, that I talk about the subjects is through that vehicle of the mentoring and machine talking to them and asking questions. Um, and as I was writing that, of course, that's a way for me to to do that for myself. I'm trying to look at, say, the story of Math Son of Mathonwi. And you know why? Why was Ariane Rod seen as a wicked woman by Gwydion? You know why was um, uh, Go when married off? Bing, she's out of the picture. You know all those questions about myth that are actually also quite political from a woman's point of view. Yeah. You know, because, and and why is all, why are all the women characters? in that story defined by their sexual status, but the men aren't. Those kinds of questions that they throw around in this little group talking about it and um, and how it unfolds through the two novels, uh, the, the second and the third novel, um, and they were easier for me, easier ways, I thought, of, of looking at perspectives um, and... But at the same time, having a, a, an intention behind it, because the the perspective was to reflect my process, but also to reflect my own conclusions at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, mm. yeah. So the, the subject matter does get very confrontational for some people. Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, this is the thing about, say, something like pornography. It's so prevalent in society and yet if you have a conversation about critiquing it, oh, my goodness, how dare you? You know, there's a sense that you can't do that. And yet you think, well, hang on a minute, it's pornography. Isn't that that's really graphic? Why can't we talk about uh, or criticise it or 
anything and suddenly it becomes taboo uh, and that's a real contradiction and um, and so I thought well for me to talk about it is is a way that is obviously uh, not might not be popular because it might you know upset people's apple carts um, if they were reading it you know that's the thing is that um, at the moment, it's not got that kind of readership, you know, no. wide. But um, I, I love that it, you've got opportunities within the book to have enough characters that you can actually discuss the dynamics of it from a few different points of view. That's, I think, that's really valuable yeah. as well. Um, there, there are a, a lot of characters, I guess, and there's, what do they call them? There's the core characters, then there's, there's another circle of characters around that, and then there's another circle around that. Mm. And I don't know anything about this when I started to write the book, that I just had all these characters. Yeah. But, but they're all meant to have a purpose. Mm. You know, they're not there just, I mean, there is a sense that that's our life. We do have lots of people that pop in and out of our lives. And sometimes the people that that pop in on the periphery actually have a profound input, mm. but they might just then disappear again. But that doesn't make them less important. Um, sometimes that's more the, important. At yeah. Times. Yeah. And and any you know daily encounter that you can have, an, an act of kindness from a stranger, even. So those little things, um, I wanted to portray that sense of the. The, the normal aspect of life, that this is, you know, complicated. Life is busy and complicated and layered. Um, but, of course, there are the, the strong characters, the dominant characters that, that tell the story and mm. um, and that is that is actually hard to manage um, because especially as they develop, you know, they become quite strong. So by the fourth book, I'm like, I can't neglect that character, but it's the energy that has to go into everything. And some some passages just write themselves. They're just so easy to write. And others I have to labour at a mm. uh, long time. Um, and it depends on what the subject of this, the chapter is or the, the, you know, if I need to research something. Um and how that will, you know, be then woven into the into the conversation. Um, there's a lot of conversations, which is, you know, because that's how Rasheen gets to know everything. People mm-hmm. talk to her, <laughs> or she's present when they're talking, and she's listening. Um, so, you know, because because that's another person said to me. Oh, it's so honest and yeah, as you say, like in a way challenging. But I thought that's because I have to have everything said because otherwise you don't know what's going on because there's only one person narrating the story. Um, yeah, there's a lot in the books that I think uh, I was very uh, nervous about writing, but I tried to write with integrity and keep to my you know, my vision mm. and hope the best. <laughs> so Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So really incredible effort and 
yeah, to get so many, so many concepts discussed in such depth, I think is, you know, it's an impressive thing to have done. But 
I, I really feel in some ways that this was a story that I, I said to my Adam one day, <laughs> I think I was vacuuming at the time, <laughs> I said, why me? Why did you pick me? Because I felt so inadequate and so ordinary and so tied to this vacuum cleaner and my, um, you know, my, my kids, which I love to pieces, but, of course, it's just that sense of being in a very confined world. But I knew, even as I asked the question, why me, I thought because of that confinement has shown me so much and he said to me, back to me, because you are enough to do that, you have it. And I was like, oh, thanks. (laughs) Obviously, it's kind of obvious in a way, but, um, yeah, I thought, well, this story has come through me. You know, if there's a land of stories (laughs) and there's windows and doorways, I'm the one for this story and I just have to accept that. Yeah, who else is going to do it? No one. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) so that's kind of the way I look at it now is that this is my little window and um I have to do it there's no turning back and um I think I realized that when I was yeah into mist uh I thought yeah there's there's something about this I can't I can't turn away from it this is my life's work and yeah. everything seems to revolve around it, actually, you know, aspects of it. You could go off on a tangent, but it would still be connected to this to the core theme. And that's, I guess, I'm not a writer like some writers who just write all different kinds of novels. This is my way uh, of doing it. So I've kind of accepted that about myself now. Yeah, you've got to just do it your own mm. way. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh, ten thirty already. We couldn't expect it to be a short chat when the books are so no. long and thorough. True. <laughs> no, yeah. You definitely, definitely made the made the record for the length of my podcast. It's Just got going. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. But yes, well, thank you. Thank you again. It's been lovely chatting. Yeah. You yeah. too. I'll chat to you thank soon. Thank you. You too. Okay. 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 Thanks, Lee. See ya. See ya. So, wow. Thank you for listening through. That was definitely the longest podcast I've ever made. Um, The music that you heard there uh, throughout the first one was Priestess by Casey Guy Stevenson. And you can find his music on Bandcamp under KC Guy. And you can listen to an interview that I did with him um, on my podcast as well, just a couple of episodes back. Uh, also there was a song called Gift of the Boing by um, Spiral Dance and uh, I unfortunately didn't quite get to talk to Louise about that song because I ended up talking about her artwork and getting on to other things but um, that was the song that she was going to talk about um, that was on the Sylvan Doorway album so you can find that on Bandcamp as well and um, all of the other good places to find music I'll pop some links into the show notes so that you can find Louise's books and her Facebook accounts and all of the other things that were mentioned that I would put a a link to 
will be there so you can find out more information. But um, thanks again to Louise for that wonderful interview. It was really interesting to talk to you. And I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. See you next time.